Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself. He's laughing right now. The Jewish sage, the one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? I am great, Chris. How are you? I was watching last week's broadcast last night, and we talked about how crisp and pressed your shirt was last week. And I'm back to my old schluffy self. <laughs> schluffy. Schluffy asleep. I guess uh, schlocky self is, the be- is a better word. <laughs> We're giving some Yiddish uh, er, words early in the program. Well, listen, uh, hold on one second. Here we go before we get started. Welcome in, welcome in. I'm so glad that you're with us. Uh, um, Steve, I said it last week. I'll say it again. I think we have a great program for our listeners. All eight of them. All, uh, no, had, seven of well, them. Well, there's seven, but I just was on a trip and I found out somebody else listened. Oh, really? Yeah. We do have an eighth person? I guess we do. There's competition, I guess. I know it's been seven, but I when I was, I was in Chicago over the weekend and I found uh, that there are some people who listen who came to me and said, well, I'm your eighth. So I don't know how many eights we have. Well, I had a friend in church that came up to me and she said, I'm number eight. I listened on the way into church. Let's have a competition. Who is number eight? I like it. Uh, No, but we we love our seven listeners and our number eight as well. Um, But uh, we're going to have a great show lined up. We're going to be talking about some funny stuff. Uh, some serious stuff. Very serious stuff. Um, uh, And uh, and then we're going to end with a Yiddish word of the day. So funny, serious Yiddish word. It doesn't get any better than that. Chris, let me just start off by telling you, I I was in Chicago. You know, we joke about the seven listeners, and we had talked about George, who was one of our listeners, and he listened the whole podcast in the shower. We've talked about George. While eating a sandwich. And it's funny because my brain wants to think about what that looks like. And then and my I, brain goes, no, stop, you do, stop. It's too much information. Well, anyway, George went home to be with the Lord. Uh, his family asked me to come out and do his service, which I did. Uh, they actually taped our conversation about him, knowing that we lost one of our seven listeners. And now we needed somebody to take his place and of course, we've had some people write in, they want to take George's place. But I did the memorial service and stood up in front of several hundred people and said, just so you know, George, listen to the Jew and the Gentile podcast in the shower. <laughs> and that's the way I said it. I waited while eating a sandwich. <laughs> and they burst into laughter. Because that's exactly the truth. Well, didn't you say that George's son-in-law had some interesting things to say about the podcast? George's son-in-law is a Latino and married to a his a Mexican's daughter. She's Mexican and German because George married a German gal. So it gets complicated. But <laughs> so Angel Rivera's been teaching kindergarten, a male kindergarten teacher in the Chicago school system. For 37 years, I met Angel years ago as a teenager, uh, just came to know Christ, uh, going to the local church where I was speaking. Marvelous testimony. So I I talked to Angel, say, how's it going? Angel asked him about life in general. He said, Steve, I'm quelling. (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm quelling. (laughs) Did he nail the word quelling too? Perfect. Wow. Perfect. He said, I'm quelling. Don't you think I listened to the Jew and the Gentile podcast? <laughs> and I said, evidently you do, at least for the quelling part. <laughs> Angel, thank you. 
He, he Unbelievable. Passes, he passes the Yiddish word of the day test. Unbelievable. What a story. And, you know, you hear things about education today. You do. All kinds of things. Chicago, unfortunately, has got a lot of negative news. But isn't it heartwarming to know there's a believer mm. in a school faithfully teaching little kids, loving them unconditionally, going into teaching to make an impact? And he told me right now he is teaching children of the kindergartners he taught. Oh, that's amazing. At, at some, and they Didn't come you to- say, too, that he there's a kid that just, you know, I guess maybe he doesn't have a father, and he waits out every morning for for Angel to come into work, and he gives him a hug? Uh, Ex- exactly. I asked Angel about, I said, you know, how many fatherless kindergartners do you teach? He said, I, I don't even know the number. And he said, what I try to do is just, Love them the best I can, mm. and yes, he he told me the story of one student who he, he already had. He's he's moved on, but in the morning, he as he's at the elementary school, he wants to get a hug from Angel. So Angel, give him a hug for the from the Jew and the Gentile podcast. I, guys. I love what you said too about uh, Angel and his wife. His wife, the German, has the you know that she has everything organized. It says that the way she was going to say it, but then he's emotional. He's much more emotional. I like that. Same in my family. Yep. Alice is that way. I'd, hey, isn't it great the way God built us? hundred percent. All different. Well, speaking of the way God builds us, uh, have you heard? Yeah, uh, yeah, Chris. <laughs> this story. First of all, this story isn't Jewish. We we Laura picked it out, and she said. Just so you know, this isn't Jewish, but I had to pick it out anyway. Well, that's why. Tell us why. Chris. Well, that's why we're putting it up front because it's so funny and interesting, but also kind of theological in the way that we think about um, you know, the world that we're living in today. But uh, this is the headline from the BBC: <laughs> Walrus Freya killed by Norway gets Oslo sculpture. Okay, so let let me share with you a little bit about this Walrus Freya. Freya weighs 1,300 pounds, and uh, before you go thinking Freya is this nice little tiny um, uh, walrus, uh, the local authorities said that the mammal rose to fame, the walrus rose to fame after clamoring on boats to sunbathe. It would climb on the boats to sunbathe, sometimes sinking the boats, okay? (laughs) The local authorities later said people had ignored warnings not to get too close to the animal. Putting her at uh, uh, putting her and themselves at risk. On one occasion, police blocked off a bathing area while the walrus chased a woman into the water. Local media reported at the time. Norway's fisheries ministry also issued a photograph of a large group of people, including children, standing within touching distance of the animal. And it goes on to say that the 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 director of general of director general of fisheries Frank Bach Jensen said they had to put this animal down because of, quote, an overall assessment of the continued threat to human safety. Chris, they raised money to have a statue of Freya laying out <laughs> the walrus. The walrus. <laughs> Freya the walrus. They raised $25,000. And Chris, according to this, the bronze life-size statue of Walrus Freya is called For Our 
sins. Th- this That's what it's called. <laughs> for-, for our sins. So let's go back again. Here is this walrus. I-, I was reading the article, and it says that the walrus shouldn't even really be in that area, that they're normally typically further north. And so here it is. It's tormenting people. It's sinking boats. The local authorities said this thing is a, it's a hazard, and so it has to be put down. Um, and so they put it down, and then I guess animal rights activists or whatever, they raised uh, the funds. They built this um, uh, sculpture that is of this of this walrus that's called For Our Sins, which Laura thought it was interesting, and I'm glad she put this spin on it. It's that it's funny how when we say as Christians that there are sins, there are actual sins that separate us from God, people go, ah, you Christians, you know, oh, you know, just you live the way you want to live. Let us live the way we want to live. Well, here is an actual torment to society, this, this huge 1,300-pound walrus, and they have to euthanize it. And then they go, oh, it's our our sins did this. How could we have done this? The, the sculptors uh, named it that. So it's just interesting how you know, they might not be religious people, but they definitely believe either in the environment or animals. They, it becomes their religion, and this is the sins of their religion. Chris, they named the walrus after the Norse goddess of beauty and love. So for people who, are, who, who get our notes that you have, uh, Chris makes available, you could see uh, Freya. You could see her laying on the boats and all that. I tell you, Chris, I don't know. N- not a pretty punum. <laughs> not a pretty punum. Not a pretty punum. I wouldn't necessarily go with the beautiful. You know, I'm not going with the Shana. Shana's beautiful that's in Yiddish. Right. I'm not going with that. But uh, they named it after a goddess. Don't you find that the whole? First of all, it's for our sins. Named after a goddess. People yell and scream at people like us who believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We don't make statues to a walrus. That's right. Uh, and I, I don't know. It's just interesting. It was an interesting piece. Enough. Thank for us you, to, Laura. Thank you, Laura. And I love when I get this posted and you guys go to the show notes to look at this. It's just funny to see the walrus climbed up on people's boats. Could you imagine going to your boat in a 1,300-pound well, walrus? Well, look at the bottom. There's a picture of... of Free a sunbathing and the boat is half in the air, thirteen hundred pounds. Oh, Freya, I'm, I, I'm. It's a great story, but I wouldn't necessarily. Yeah, we're sorry say, they had to kill the walrus. I no, we really. Who, who, no one wants. They didn't want to do it, but they did because of our sins. That's right. right. Exactly. Well, listen. Uh, speaking of an injustice, uh, that's what this next section of justice, if you will, justice and injustice. That's what this next section of Revelation chapter 15 is all about. Steve, it's not about a walrus. Nope. But it is about God setting up this final stage of his wrath being poured out in Revelation chapter 16, but we're talking about Revelation chapter 15. And you know, Chris, just a quick review. We remembered in in Revelation chapter 5 that uh, John was weeping uh, that uh, he could not find anybody who can break the seals on the document he saw, and he wept and was encouraged not to weep, and only one qualified to break the seals was the lamb. The lamb was the only one qualified. And so after each of the breaking of the seals, all kinds of judgment happened. At the seventh seal would be seven 
trumpets. And we've talked about those already. At the seventh trumpet will come seven vials or bowls. Mm-hmm. And we are at that point. We The context is God is unleashing his wrath to make things right. The promises that he originally gave to restore humanity in relationship with God uh, and to restore the earth and fix the earth. Uh, a Jewish term, tukan olam, repair the world. Well, God has to repair the world. Many people think they are the ones responsible to repair the world. No, God is the one, and we're in the middle of that. And in order to repair the world, there's going to be pain, lots of pain. You know, it's important to say, too, this isn't something that John comes up with. It's just in the book of Revelation. The Bible talks about this. The Old Testament prophets talked about a global judgment that would come. Zephaniah the prophet says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, this is chapter 1, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of—and it goes on to different sons— during the reign of Hezekiah, and it says this in verse 2 for Zephaniah chapter 1, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So, you know, a lot of times when the prophets are writing, they're talking about the judgment of specific nations. Maybe it's Judah, maybe it's Israel, maybe it's Edom, maybe it's Moab. Here, Zephaniah begins his entire very short prophecy laying claim to the sins of all mankind. Uh, Paul will pick up on—Jesus, of course, picks up on it, but I thought I'd read from Paul really quick. In in Romans chapter 2, it's so important to hear what God's going to do in Romans chapter 2 as he uh, um, is talking about what happens in the end, and he's talking about what's happening, and it builds the case for Jesus in, in the book of, uh, in the book of uh, Romans. But it says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, and this is speaking to everybody, Steve, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's really, I believe that when it says his righteous judgment will be revealed, is the same word that is used to desc- for the name of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. It's the revealing of God's judgment and the revealing of his son. But you, you heard it. He's speaking to all mankind in, in Romans chapter 2, and he's saying your stubbornness to not turn to God and your unrepentant heart is storing up wrath today for the coming day of wrath. That's why you need Jesus, and that's what the prophets talked about, that's what Jesus talked about, that's what the epistles talked about, and now Revelation is telling us is going to happen. And we're getting to a point in God's program that it could be too late for people. Remember, at this period of time, people are going to have a choice to take the mark of the beast or not. If they choose not to take the mark of the beast, they will become the enemies of the beast. But this chapter, as we'll read very shortly, talks about martyrs who have chosen not to take that mark and as a result are actually victorious. It's counterintuitive to just human psychology. Let's just uh, start where it says in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven. I I want to stop there. Again, I've been using the Life Application Bible Commentary. And I thought this was really good, uh, 
reminder. It says, the next event that John saw in heaven is called another great and marvelous sign. The vision of the woman in chapter 12 and verse 1 was a great and wondrous sign. Remember, Chris, we talked about the woman and that great sign. And the vision of the dragon in that same chapter, but verse 3. Both were a sign. Clearly, these symbols point to significant events. John describes seven angels who had seven last plagues. These plagues were in golden bowls given to the angels by one of the four living creatures. The last, the seven last plagues are also called seven bowl judgments that actually begin in the next chapter. Unlike the previous plagues from the seals, which had destroyed one-fourth of the earth, that's in chapter 6 to 8, we're... T- Chris, we're talking about people dying. Yeah. This, and, and those who have already died, this isn't the worst on the earth. And the trumpets, which had destroyed another third of the earth, chapters 8 through 11, these plagues were directed only against the Antichrist followers, but affected the entire earth. These judgments were complete and final, culminating in the abolition of all evil and the end of the world. This, the clock's ticking it's ticking now, Chris, before the rapture of the church. But in the context here, this is almost it. Yep. Uh, and Christ is coming very soon. But in order to make holy, he's got a judge. You just talked about that. I'll read um, Revelation chapter. F- <clears throat> excuse me, Revelation chapter fifteen, starting in verse one. It says, "I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign: seven angels with the seven last plagues." Last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its names. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. And I'll read the song of Moses really quick. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Steve, again, it's the picture, like you said, it's two things. Number one, John sees these seven bold judgments. He knows what's coming. It's imminent. Uh, judgment is coming. It's the last of the of the pl- plagues, as they call it. Again. Using that word on purpose, because you notice John sticks Moses' song in there, um, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but he uses the term plague, and I don't think we've used the term plague yet when it comes to the to the uh, seal judgments or the trumpet judgments. Now, it, 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 in linking up with Moses, there's this idea of the, ple- you know, the ten plagues from, from uh, Exodus. Now we're seeing the seven last plagues here that will be poured out. Uh, but I like like what you said. It talks about the fact that then those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps and they sang with uh, 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 to God and they sang a song and it was Moses' song. So very important to see the dichotomy of the judgment that's coming, especially on Satan and those who follow Satan, and then on the victorious ones as well. Well, again, the quote right out of Exodus in the context of Exodus, of course, it's the Egyptians. They're the, the bad ones. And so uh, Moses quotes about the plagues, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Well, 
All of us who are Jewish, we celebrate Passover. Yeah, we won. God did it. Uh, well, here in the context, he's taking the same kind of thinking. And here, the great and marvelous works that God is doing is judging unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And unbelievers are people who took the mark of the beast, who said no to God's ways, even if it was because it didn't make sense. I, I, I think, honestly, Chris, I think of women who want to feed their kids and they can't shop and they're trying to do it for their children. And so, yes, I'll take the mark of the beast so I can buy and shop and make sure my children are healthy versus the one that won't compromise and said, nope, our hands are in God's hands and whatever happens, happens. That's hard for me now yep. to say that. Yep. Uh, we've gone through difficult times. We, I'm talking our culture, our society. We just had the COVID and all people had to make decisions that might be counterintuitive to their friends or family, and they made a stand for God. And it's different than in the context here, but nonetheless, they probably took some hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, people who are ultimately going to die because they won't take the mark of the beast, in fact, turn out to be victorious, turn out to be joyful, turn out to be similar to the slaves in Egypt who left under the blood of the lamb, were redeemed, and those who were not were judged, Mm -hmm. in that case, the Egyptians. So I think it's in the sovereignty of God and in the Holy Spirit and his pen and program, as we read about it, great, they're rejoicing, great and marvelous are your works, O God, and what's he doing? Pouring out his wrath upon those who received the mark. You you know, um, this is also answering the question that the martyrs had had earlier. If you remember that there were those who were martyred that were under the altar of God and they were crying out to him. How long? How long, O Lord? How long? Isn't that it? It is so interesting. Well, here it is. That's right. It finally has met, uh, met its place. And and I think I might have even said this before in our study of the book of Revelation, is that I don't just think it incorporates those those who have been martyred during the tribulation. I think martyrs of any um, time period in church history who whose blood was spilled for, for the cause of the gospel, the testimony of Christ, are crying out, how long, O Lord? Because it has to do with justice. It has to do—and that's why I said injustice, justice— I want to read a—there's a commentary that I've been reading about Revelation here from one of my old professors at Dallas Seminary, and he says this. This is the theology and application of, of this section in, in, in Revelation chapter 15, and he says, Why is there jubilation in the theater when the evil villain gets his comeuppance? Why does the whole class go home encouraged when the bully finally gets sent to the principal's office? Why do we feel so satisfied at hearing the stories of Harriet Tubman's exploits along the Underground Railroad in in the American South. It's because we have a built-in sense of justice that craves to see the right prevail and the tyrants get their due. And the darker the injustice and the evil becomes, the stronger and deeper the rejoicing will be over the defeat. The passage reflects the same sober exaltation over God's truth and justice winning out the last the parallels with Israel at the Exodus giving thanks for deliverance from Pharaoh helped uh, help us to catch the nuances. The oppression of slavery to sin and evil broken by God's incomparable glory and uh, power, the Lord Almighty, the King of the nations. 
uh, finally making things right for his people. And that's the picture of why they connect Moses, the Exodus, to the justice that's finally served for those who had been martyred for their testimony in Christ. Isn't it interesting, too, that uh, John's going to write about the tabernacle later, and we're just—first of all, we're talking about Moses and the great victory. Well, it was Moses that was given instructions uh, to ultimately build the tabernacle and equip people who were able—craftsmen who were able to do that according to God's specifications. And what do we know about the the temple, or in this case, the tabernacle? Uh, It was to be a place where God would camp, where God would be there. And there was a visible sign of the invisible God at the temple. So, Chris, why don't you read the last few verses of the chapter? Because it's going to talk about the glory of God and the tabernacle here in the book of Revelation. Yeah. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. The one of the four, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Man, this is this is a holy scene where there are seven bowls of God's wrath. The the images that are here they mess my mind up. You know that this morning I was doing my devotions in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6. And if you remember that story, um uh the Israelites um uh, haul the Ark of the Covenant out to battle against the Philistines because they were worried that they would lose. So they go, let's go, let's take the talisman with us. Let's take the 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 uh, the good luck charm. They thought the Ark of the Covenant was going to be a good luck charm to beat the Philistines. Well, God, He proved them wrong. He said, nope, this isn't the way you're going to use me. So what happens? The Philistines defeat the Israelites and then take the Ark of the Covenant um, back to Gath. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant right next to Dagon, the, their god. God has—this is funny. It it's is. It's a sense of humor. And, and the reason that I'm saying this is because the Ark of the Covenant belongs in the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence is. And from the Holy of Holies, judgment is, is executed because of his holiness. Well, they come into the Temple of Dagon, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and Dagon, the Philistine god. And the Philistine god is bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. He falls down every time. <laughs> every time. They leave for the night, they come back, boom. That's right. It's down. <laughs> it's down. God's judgment. The they false... pick it up the next day, down that, again. Right back down again. And then the next day, what happens? The head's cut off and the arms are cut <laughs> off of the of Dagon. Okay. So they're like, we got to get this thing. Now they're getting boils. Now the Philistines are getting boils. So they're like, get this thing out of Gath. Send it to Ekron. Send it to the other Philistine city. The thing goes on a Philistine city tour and just defeats, without even a single Israelite going to battle, God himself proves his glory by judging those who mistreated his people, uh, the Israelites, but it was showing his glory to the Gentile world. And it's the same, plagues, they were plagues, boils, and people were getting sick and things of that nature. They said, get this thing out of here now. Um, And so that's... Almost the same concept that you're seeing God's glory executing judgment. No matter where God's glory is, if if you mistreat his holiness, 
his judgment will come. That's the point of what's being said here in Revelation chapter 15. All I could say is this chapter is, I got good news and bad news. And the good news is bad news. The good news is that God is going to redeem his people. The good news is God is going to justify the unrighteous by establishing who he is and defeating nastiness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, but what, how does he do that? Well, first of all, if you're on his side in the context here, you're probably going to die. God's wrath is poured out, and you're going to be part of the casualties. But ultimately, you'll be with him. You're a martyr for your faith. The bad news is that the bad news of judgment means you're judged for all eternity as well. If you didn't believe. If, you're not, if, you, if you took the mark of the beast, you're suffering the wrath of God, and you will suffer for all eternity. If you don't take the mark of the beast, if you do recognize that great and marvelous are God's, God's words, uh, just and true are his ways, if you do recognize that, you're going to take it from uh, the Antichrist people, you're going to get judged by them, but you're going to be with him. It's a tough. This is a tough week. Yeah, <laughs> it's it a is. tough week of years. Seven years of this is bad. And Chris, one of the great benefits of understanding prophecy, and again, there are different views by believers, but we believe this week of judgment. Uh, yes, we live in a sinful world. Uh, tribulation. Jesus said, "In the world, you'll have tribulation." None of us are immune to tribulation, but there's only one the tribulation. And that's the one we don't want people to experience in any way. And we don't know when the rapture of the church will take place. We don't know when this seven weeks will happen, the 70th week will happen. But it doesn't matter. We want to tell the good news now. Trust Christ. And when a tribulation comes, and it comes to believers and unbelievers, you know where your home is. And this passage belongs to people who live through this period of time and have to make a life and death decision. And, you know, it's, again, it's not just the martyrs, I think. It's also, this all answers the question of even why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? You know, those questions that we've had for a long time, uh, all of them get answered in this moment. That's why the victorious are cheering on this moment when justice is finally served once and for all. But we haven't even gotten to it yet, Steve. It's just setting us up. Coming from the tabernacle in heaven, God's wrath is being poured out. His plagues are going to be poured out, and that's what we'll be looking at. We will. But let me just reread what you read. I I, I want to do it because I think it's fitting as we close in chapter 15. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. You know, Paul writes to the Philippians, and he says this, and I I believe literally what it says, every knee shall bow. Chris, that's going to be believers, and I believe unbelievers. Mm -hmm. You're either going to bow because you recognize and believe and love the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're going to bow out of sheer power from him and force you to bow. But the text says, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. It reminds me of a, of a person at a court where they just 
pronounced them guilty, and they they make them listen to the sentence. They make them respect the court. Uh, I've I've seen and oh probably, those ones on YouTube. Did you ever see the ones? I have seen it where the guy goes, "Ow, oh, you know that verdict means nothing," and the guy, "All right, two more days," Ex- and nah, that means nothing. I've, All right, a month, you know, and a hundred percent. I've yeah. seen that. That's every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you will either willingly do it or unwillingly, and the Bible here tells us that for you alone are holy, all the nations shall come and worship, and your judgments have been manifested. Mm. Oh, what a great passage. Mm. All right, well, that that is Revelation chapter 15, setting us up for the seven bold judgments of God's wrath, and so we'll pick up that uh, next week. Steve, is there any good news? And I mean, boy, this is, it's rough. This is rough Revel- stuff. You wanted to do Revelation. I know. What was I thinking? I have no idea, no, but we're great. getting to the good news. It, we're get, yeah, it's we're... the eternal gospel. Remember last that, week? That's right. All right, Steve. So we've got some interesting news here coming out of Israel. Why don't you lead us off with uh, McCarthy? Well, the headline out of Israel Hayom, McCarthy to Israel Hayom, if Biden doesn't invite Netanyahu... I will. That's a big one. <laughs> that is a big one. This has happened to Netanyahu before. Do you remember? Was it during the Obama administration? They, I don't. It's not that they didn't invite him over, but or maybe he had some information about Iran. Wanted to it talk, was about the Iranian deal that's that right. he thought was not a deal, and the only one worldwide who would say you're dealing with people who are telling you they're not going to deal, and yet you still want to deal. <laughs> he he gave them example. There have been some who said of that speech, regardless how what you think of Netanyahu, I know there are a lot of people who don't like him, but he's a statesman. He he is Churchillian yep. in, in the way he stands against evil in the world. And so, yes, he was invited. He, he was magnificent. I'm trying to remember who the Speaker of the House was that invited him to that. Um, uh, he was from Ohio. Who was the uh, Speaker? Um, oh, yeah, I forgot his name, too. Yeah, I think it begins with a B, maybe, the last name. Anyway, if you think of it, if it pops yeah. up, uh, but say it out loud. But um, anyway, I remember he got invited, and the Congress came. And I remember it was kind of like uh, the first time that I think— uh, the House of Representatives had invited a, a dignitary from another country without the permission or the, you know, the Blessing. go-ahead from the president. But they did that on purpose because the JCPOA, that uh, Iranian deal, was a bad deal. Um, and now here, Biden doesn't—because of some politics in Israel, pol- Israeli politics, not global politics, little nuances to how they're going to do politics, Biden had said, I'm not having Netanyahu come over. Um, and McCarthy says, no, I'll invite him. Listen, Chris, he says, if that, in parentheses, visit to the White House doesn't happen, that is, if Biden's not going to invite him, I'll invite the prime minister to come meet with the House. He's a dear friend as a prime minister of a country that we have our closest ties with, McCarthy said. When pressed on how long he would wait, McCarthy said, I think it's too long now. We should invite him soon. <laughs> he added that he already invited President Isaac Herzog to speak before both chambers of Congress in June to mark Israel's 75th birthday. That is something That else. is something. So McCarthy is in Israel, and he's going to address the Knesset. He did address the Knesset. Oh, it already happened. He already addressed them, and he you know, congratulated them and um, told them how important the Israel-U.S. relationship is. 
and he did a fantastic job. You know what I like about McCarthy is that he's going over there and he is not bothered by it, Israeli who's in power. He's not bothered by Israeli politics and the policies they're doing. He's not bothered by the governing coalition over there. He is there for one reason, which is the reason any dignitary from the president to the uh, secretary of state to anybody, it's the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's not about their politics. You know, if, if Biden can go to Saudi Arabia and pound the, the, um, the leader over there, MBS, if he can give him a pound, then, I mean, think about the difference in human rights between Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, it's so it's so uh, un, uh, unbalanced. In the Let way me we do summarize this. the Jewish view of what just happened. He goes over because Zygazunt, live and be well, do whatever you want. You're our friend. And I'd love to fellowship with you. Zygazunt. Zygazunt with whatever your <laughs> politics are. We're friends. And we ought to express friendship. For our new listeners, how would you describe Zygazen? Live and be well. Li- <laughs> Wait, it's been a while, Steve. Yeah, uh, Oy, nope, that's me. not it. Nope. Zygazen. Live and be well. There we go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> We've, we, we haven't, haven't played that one. We haven't done that well, one. You gotta while. remind them. You got these buttons here. I, I have the I have the Steve Herzig buttons here. I'll play them for when certain emotional moments come hey, up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's Revelation 15. That's right there. <laughs> Oy vase me. That's kind of it yeah, as well. That's kind of too. Here's the, the Zygazunt. Live and be that's well. That's for McCarthy. That's right. Is anything okay? <laughs> Is anything okay? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that's a way a lot of people feel in Revelation 15 that's too. Right. Is anything that's okay? Right. Well, I think you could use that expression in the next news event. This was This was mind-blowing. Is anything okay? Roman army may have included kosher observant Jews 2,000 years ago. Wait, <laughs> Did this blow your mind I as a bl- Jewish man? Wait a minute. Is anything okay <laughs> with our people? Yes, our temple's being burnt down. Our people are fleeing. And kosher Jewish people are helping to tear it down. <laughs> the, the, wh- what is going on here? <laughs> that we're talking about 70 AD when the Roman army under the leadership of Titus uh, comes in and destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Tell them where it comes from, Chris. Well, Look at this news. Item. This comes from the Times of Israel. And the Times of Israel. <laughs> A new study published in the Jewish Quarter, a Quarterly Review shows that the Roman army allowed various minorities to maintain their religious and dietary practices, including the Jews. That The possibility that Jews served in large numbers in the Roman army is, star- is a startling find since the Roman army is generally portrayed as an enemy to the Jewish nation. In various military campaigns, the Roman army destroyed the Holy Temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and plundered its way through Judea to the last holdouts on Masada in 73 AD, in addition to military campaigns against the Jews in the second century. That means that even at Masada, as the zealots are hit out on top top of the mountain, on top of the plateau there, for three years, there could have been Jewish soldiers down there keeping kosher. And Jewish slaves building the the ramp. Can you imagine Uh, that you're watching your own, you're a Roman citizen. There are enemies, there are friends, and we're stuck up here. That's right. You found some interesting (laughs) things in this article, too. Listen, it says, there were Jews in the Roman army and Jews fighting against the Roman army, he said, adding, there were Jews fighting among themselves. (laughs) That was always a problem. So you got... Jews in the Roman army, you got Jews fighting against the Roman army, and to top it off, there's Jews fighting Jews. <laughs> and this is 2,000 years ago when, in actuality, Chris, 
Things haven't changed. No, have 100%. Because we were talking about this. You know, w- when you speak to certain Jewish people today um, uh, uh, that might be more pro Palestinian, man, they'll throw Israel, the only Jewish state in the world, right, right under, under the, the bus. bus. I right mean, under the you bus. You know, these people are an apartheid state. The way they abuse the Palestinians, they're killing. I mean, the verbiage they use, they're killing Palestinians. Um, and so, anyway, th- there's still that similar mentality of uh, kind of Jewish people fighting Jewish people. And it even happens in some of the more reformed Jewish circles against the Orthodox Jewish people. And you can even see the tension, not that they fight one another, but the tension even in Israeli politics. We were just talking about McCarthy and Israel, but you've got all these Orthodox Jewish people uh, in in the government right now. And who's frustrated with the government? All those liberal, secular Jewish people, because they don't want to live under a a theocracy, and so they are protesting like crazy. And that's fine. That's their right to do that. But to think of the fact that Jewish people were getting paid to come down to destroy the Jewish temple, maybe they just had no association. Well, I guess they were keeping kosher, though. They must have. How could they have done that? How could they have been kosher-keeping Jews and at the same time destroy the temple? Oh, there are kosher-keeping Jews. There were 75 years ago who are against. They're they're ultra-Orthodox, and they're against the nation of Israel because the doctrine that they believe in says only Mashiach will bring the land. So it, man will not do it. So they are, there are actually... But do you a, think that these kosher-keeping Jews in 2,000 years ago were that religious? Do you, I mean, what, I, I, hey, I'm not an archaeologist. This whole thing messed my mind up, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it's telling me, this, this historian is telling me that, yes, it's true. Jews fighting Jews, Roman Jews going against the temple. It's... This is Michigas, but it's true. It's uh, it must be true. And you know, it, interesting. The diet for the Roman soldier we're, we read here is based on the Mediterranean triad of bread, oil, and wine. That doesn't sound. I mean, like all those things are fine, but that doesn't. If that's your constant diet, bread, oil, well, and but wine? wait a minute. Soldiers were required to prepare the food for themselves. <laughs> number one, including grinding the grain into flour slaughtering the animals, baking the bread, though sometimes the bread was made in central camps and distributed to the soldiers in loaves. Most conscripts and infantrymen were divided into eight-person groups, sometimes with two slaves or porters that shared a tent and donkey for carrying supplies. It's likely that the Jews who observed the dietary laws were eight together. In other words, they took the Jewish people who were, they said, oh, you Jewish people, you could be your eight and therefore keep your laws. Keep your kosher. It's mind-blowing, Chris, as I as I think of the temple being destroyed. It doesn't change the theology. It doesn't change my mindset or the biblical information. But as you see uh, truths coming out, as we find out more information, it just demonstrates Life is complicated. Yeah, you know, you can never just put a monolithic stamp on a group of people. You know, you can't just say, oh, the Jewish people acted this way. You know, I was reading in this book, Steve, that there, you know, Josephus talks about that there were four different types of Jewish people during the days of Jesus. Only four? Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm saying. Only four? That's, <laughs> the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and, you know, uh, the the uh, the common people at that time. The Amchaoret, the right. people of the land. That, that's what Josephus says. There's four different 
philosophies of uh, of Jewish people. But then the Talmud, it says the Talmud says there's 23 different groups of Jewish people. So, you know, you can never just simply claim, because even when you think about Jew- Sadducees and Pharisees, these are two Jewish people, but they believe two different things, and they both have a different way of looking at the world. The Pharisees wanted to purify everything, keep everything kosher, keep everything clean, keep the sinners out, make everything just white. The Pharisees, oh, we love the Romans, we love the power, we love the money, we love the assimilation, we love. Uh, we don't have to read the whole Bible, we just read the Torah so we can disagree on theology— that can change the way two Jewish people think. It's like politics. And so, again, it's uh, it's interesting to see this because this throws it for a total loop because now Jewish people are coming in and destroying the temple. Chris, too. you're telling me I have to change the joke. You get two Jewish people, you get three opinions. <laughs> now you get two Jewish people, you get 23! <laughs> <laughs> and a guy who's going to destroy the temple. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, uh, and uh, we want to give uh, uh, pay homage to uh, pay homage. Is that right? Or, or give, give credit? Give credit. Uh, uh, remember, a uh, individual here. Laura gave us this. Uh, Benjamin uh, friends. Uh, he's the last surviving Nuremberg prosecutor. He dies at 103. In addition to convicting prominent Nazi war criminals. He crusaded for an international criminal court and for laws to end wars of aggression. So Benjamin uh, Ferenz, uh, the last surviving prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, who convicted Nazi war criminals and organizing of the organizing of the murder of a million people and German industrial uh, industrialists of using slave labor from concentration camps to build Hitler's war machine, he died um, on Friday. Uh, assisting an assisted living living in Boynton Beach, Florida. He was 103. I'll just share one more thing that he did, which is very interesting. Um, he tried. Uh, it says this: a dozen subsequent trials at the Palace of the Justice of Nuremberg put German judges, doctors, industrialists, dim- uh, diplomats, and less senior military leaders in the docks in, in cases supervised by Justice Jackson's uh, successor. And it talks about Mr. Friends was assigned to prosecute the notorious. Eitzengruppen case, Oy. Yep, which is a staggering volume of uh, victims, has been called the biggest murder trial in history. It was a case against 22 Nazis, including six generals, who organized, directed, and often joined roaming SS extermination squads, 3,000 killers, aided by local police and other authorities, who rounded up and slaughtered a million specifically targeted people. And so the Eitzengruppen were people who would come in following the German army as they were pushing up through into Russia, Eastern Europe um, during that the World War II. And as they were going, the Eitzengruppen would come in and find those who could uh, uh, who w- could commit treason. And so who who could commit treason? Well, the Jewish people did. So the Eitzengruppen would line up Jewish people and systematically murder them, stick them in vans that would have the exhaust from the vans shoved right back into the into the compartment where they were sitting and just suffocate them. Um, and so this dear man, uh, the last surviving prosecutor, Benjamin Friends, passed away in Boynton Beach, Florida, at the age of 103. You know, Chris, that news item just reminds us afresh. First of all, man's inhumanity to man, sinful man, number one. It also reminds us that as time goes by, the memory, you lose it. Mm -hmm. And Chris, you could trace anti-Semitism in the United States back at right after the war, where there was a low incidence even if it was even if people had bad feelings towards the jewish people 
peer pressure would be so high, no one would display it, or very, very few. But as time goes on, and it keeps going on, and more and more of the reality, those who survived, who were living witnesses to the event, they die off. You could see correspondingly the rise in anti-Semitism, where we've talked about it here on the podcast. The majority of hate crimes in the United States are anti-Semitic hate crimes. And there are people, about a quarter of our country doesn't even believe that the Holocaust took place. There are, like, I think one in ten students think the Jewish people uh, committed the Holocaust, which is, (laughs) what? That's because they're not being educated, and they're getting their information from social media. The, yeah. the biggest the biggest propagator of false information about the Holocaust is hands down social media. Yeah, no question. And no so question. we have to keep an eye on that. But uh, hey, we're going to end with the Yiddish word of the day, everybody. The, Yiddish word the of the Yiddish day. Yiddish word of the day comes from Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your works. So we decided to find the Yiddish word for Marvelous. I can't And wait. I can't tell you, Chris, that I grew up hearing this, but as soon as I saw it, I loved it. Marvelous in English is not in English. In English. In Yiddish is Wunderlich. 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 This is great. Wonder Oh, that's Wunderlich. <laughs> Marvelous. Marvelous. <laughs> so God's Marv what is it again? Wunderlich? Wunderlich. Wunderlich. God's great and wonderlich. That's it. Are your works so good? Great and wonderlich. All right, that's our Yiddish word of the day. Marvelous, wonderlich. Wonderlich. I can't see the get. All right, that's good. I'm gonna give. Come on, Chris. You gotta work on it. And next week, give it another. All right, I'll try it again next week. Hey, really quick before we close, I want to remind you that the Jew and Gentile podcast is sponsored by. We almost forgot to do that. What are you out of your mind? I am losing it. FOI. Equip sponsors the Jew and Gentile podcast. It's your opportunity to learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective, and Israel is celebrating its 75th anniversary. So I'm going to be teaching a three-week course, three sessions, Thursday nights, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live online. You can register for that class by going to foiequip.org. You will quell. Uh, you will quell if you take Chris's course. Come you'll, on. you'll quell. Just ask Angel Rivera. That's <laughs> I better see him in that class. But hey, that we want you to be a part of everything that Friends of Israel is doing, and the best way to get connected is through FOI Equip. We're so thankful that you listen to the Jew and Gentile podcast, but when you get to FOI Equip, be sure to register for my class. We've got another class coming up on in June talking about the Six-Day War, and you can even become a part of what we're doing here at, at the Friends of Israel by joining us on one of our encounter trips. Because it's wonderful. It's, it's marvelous <laughs> to be able to interact with the Jewish people in Brooklyn, do a Hasidic walking tour, serve the Jewish people in South Jersey, celebrate a Shabbat with the Jewish people, all with the Friends of Israel. Hey, go to foiequip.org to find out more information, and we'll see you next week.